Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Here we are with our guest, Star Saxton. Thank you for joining us today on Focus Ed. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, Star, we're going to jump right in. You wrote a book called Hacking Assessments. Please tell us why you wrote the book, what it's about, what it means to hack assessments in schools, and what you want educators to take from it. Okay, so I was a high school English teacher. I taught mostly 12th grade English and journalism, and I taught AP literature. And average grade, which is essentially what we were doing, we used letters at the time at my school. Um, that that situation was definitely challenging because anyone who teaches English knows, first of all, to do is pretty subjective, even when you have a rubric. And a B could mean a lot of different things. So I really didn't feel like I was communicating appropriately with parents or with students because, you know, like I said, a B could mean you were really good at one thing, but not really good at something else or be across the board or you know you you really just with the mixing and matching book grades did so what I started doing in my school was I started playing with different ways to assess students aligned with standards but not giving student grades right away Um, we started really bringing reflection into the mix where students would tell me what their goals were for the assignments and then they also had an opportunity to tell me how well they thought they did and why they thought that aligned with the standards and they actually had to pull from their writing. Um, Because I did work in New York City, I was required to put a grade at the end of the marking period at progress report time. So I started doing conferences with the students so that their voices could be a part of what went on the report card. And essentially what they had to do was they had to look at their portfolio of work and they really needed to tell me how they felt they were doing and what evidence they had to support it. And then together, we determined whatever grade was going to go on their report cards. But honestly, the grade didn't really matter to me because I was more concerned with the fact that they could articulate what they knew and could do and that they could articulate when they needed help and what areas I could really help them with. So when I wrote Hacking Assessment, I really documented my journey moving away from that traditional classroom and moving towards this more fluid assessment practice using standards-based assessment 
and project-based learning and giving kids a voice in class, allowing them to really show me what they knew, even if I didn't have a great body of work to work with because some kids especially are more um, school averse, but very bright, don't necessarily do the work because we expect them to, but that doesn't mean they aren't getting what they need to be getting from the class. So what I found out was that a lot of kids who I thought got it weren't necessarily there and those who would have easily passed for not getting it were actually further along than I had expected. So having those conversations really started to give me a better idea of how to inform my instruction in, in class. And that's exactly what hacking assessment does is it walks you through the process if you're ready to let, you know, regardless of your level of readiness, um, it shows you different ways you can adjust your assessment practices to make them more equitable for all students. It's essentially the long and short of it. Star, thank you for that. <clears throat> we appreciate you really kind of telling us your journey as well while you're still in the classroom, some of your frustrations. What you revealed to us though is that it's a lot of the dialogue between you and the student that's opening your eyes to their learning and what they're actually getting out of the daily uh, work, the daily assessments. I know a constant fear among teachers and administrators though is time and getting through the curriculum in spite of learning sometimes, you know? So we, I know we know we battle that. Can you speak to that a little bit, how you manage time, how you met with so many of your students and still kept um, on pace? Because um, that's usually where the balance needs to happen. So as an English teacher, I believe that going deeper is a little bit better than getting a lot done. Um, I did have an AP curriculum to get through, but I did not test prep in that space at all. If kids wanted test prep, I ran lunch sessions. We didn't waste class time doing stuff like that. Um, and I really put together these projects that were usually between a week and a half to two weeks long where instruction was happening while they were learning and the conferring when the time came over the years I sort of streamlined the process where the kids had appointment times if they couldn't make their appointment times during class I made time at the beginning of the day or after the school day um, I allowed them to box with me sometimes if they couldn't, you know, if they weren't in school and they missed their appointment, we could box, we could do a Google Hangout. I really tried to be as flexible with my students as possible because remember they were 11th and 12th graders mostly. And since they were gonna be going to college soon, I really wanted them to start learning to manage their time there. So there was these other sort of lessons built in there as well that they needed to be prepared for these meetings that they needed to be on time for them because there was a pretty tight schedule that went on um, to prepare for those meetings while kids were working on these projects in class they had a lot of flexibility with what they were doing while they were in class lots of different things going on at once so they could have been working on their portfolios they could have been working on their projects while I was doing the conferences. And those conferences usually took about a week and a half of class time, right at midterm and then at the end of, the, at the end of terms as well. Um, and other times since class was all project-based anyway, there was always a workshop sort of model going on. And 
I would confer with groups um, and then adjust instruction based on what I was seeing happening in those groups. So time really became a lot more fluid and my students still performed well on the test because they really understood what they needed to do and they were setting goals all the time. And we really milked the 47 minutes that we had together every single day. Plus, I'm super, I was always super accessible to my students, whether it was on social media, they knew they could get me on Twitter or Voxer. Um, my journalism students had my cell phone number because if we were near deadline and we need to communicate, we did communicate. So I know that a lot of teachers don't like having those kind of boundaries blurred, but it, it made my life easier to have it be a little bit more flexible. And at the end of the year, they could choose how they wanted to do their end of year conference. It could be one-on-one, -on -one, it could be a, you know, a screencast, a video, a podcast, or written. So they could also be doing that work on their own if they wanted to, and that also helped with time in class. So Star, you talk you talked a lot about flexibility and the conference, and I got to imagine that that drives a lot of saved time too, because the more you know about what they know, the less time you have to spend um, filling class time with 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 things that um, they've already they've already gotten right. So. So we, we hear your flexibility, we hear their flexibility in that space, but can you talk about a traditional school, like your peers up the hall and uh, still you gotta give a report card and how do you navigate that um, for our listeners and for the people in the room for professional development? How, what's your advice on being in a traditional school and trying to do something as non-traditional as this and what are some of the roadblocks you faced and how'd you overcome them okay so that's a really loaded question um i think a lot of my colleagues resented me because kids liked being in my class a lot and at first everyone thought that they were going to do so much less work because of the approach that i took but ultimately Kids were doing five times as much in my class because they liked doing it. The, and my AP class was in the morning and then I had another class right before lunch and the bell would ring and they wouldn't leave for lunch. They would keep working. The conversations were so rich. Um, a lot of my colleagues thought I was crazy. Um, not gonna lie about that. I mean, let's face it, teachers kind of use grades not always as a means to communicate learning. Sometimes we use it uh, as a way to um, manipulate and control students um, when we're giving points or taking points off for things that have nothing to do with learning like homework and extra credit and late work and other compliance behavioral measures that teachers can't control in a space. So my school very much was traditional. I was the only teacher in my school doing what I was doing. Um, I did not have very much support. I didn't have administration telling me I couldn't do it. And I mean, my classroom was always the one they brought the outsiders into to come see. But um, I don't think my leaders knew what to do with me. And when I was a leader in my last position, um, when I started trying to help teachers move away from grades two in a support capacity from a leadership role, 
I really tried to do the things I always wanted when I was in this position. I went into their classroom and modeled how to co-construct success criteria. I went in there and I taught a lesson on reflection. I co-taught co or came in as a second pair of eyes the first time they did their rounds of conferences so that they didn't have to worry about the kids going out of control because there wasn't another pair of eyes in the room when they were doing that. So leaders could be really helpful if a teacher wanted to try this out as well because you could be in the room not as a supervisor or as a boss, but as a helping hand to support them as they move. And, and you don't have to get rid of all the grades all the, all the way. You could just start by using the language of the standards and tying everything back to your learning objectives and collecting really good data around whether or not kids are meeting the objectives you want them to do and making sure that you have some kind of portfolio system where they are gathering their learning so that they could see the, prog the progress. It's tangible and it's not just increasing grades, but it's actual development that they could see and articulate themselves. Star, as a follow-up to that, do you feel the students were genuine and generally speaking, obviously, but the conversations about like their self-reported grades, we know Hattie speaks a lot about that. The research is clear on that. Do you feel that they were authentic with you regarding their ability levels, their frustrations or stresses, and like you said, a little more gauged on their learning? Um, and if so, why do you think? Was it just because of the authenticity of the conversations or why were they so willing to be honest when we know a lot of them are just completing assignments to get a grade? Well, I, there's a whole mood shift that happens in the class. It's not just around the grades. When someone would ask me, what did I get? It, it was a constant refocusing of not what did you get, what did you learn? Tell me what you learned. That's more important than what you got. Um, you know, or how do you think I did? Well, you tell me, how do you think you did? And why do you think that? Um, I think students were extremely spot on. I would say 95% of them were really close, if not lowballing themselves. Um, because we were always talking that about how learning was a continual kind of thing on a spectrum. And since we're all lifelong learners, do we ever get to a place where we're really masterful in all of the things that we do? It's not realistic. And there's always more to learn. So they didn't see being, you know, proficient or having mastery in certain areas of what they were doing and not in others as a negative thing. Um, they saw it as opportunities for growth and that was a lot of what the reflecting was about and that was a lot of what we, we celebrated progress all the time so there really was this shift did I have some kids who definitely said they did better than they did of course you have your you know two percent of kids with delusions of grandeur and it's really easy to sort of refocus that conversation because all you have to say to them is, you know, okay, so tell me what evidence you have to support that assessment of yourself. And usually they'll, they would smile at me and kind of giggle a little bit and then kind of come down to a normal place where, where I would have agreed where they were in a, in a you know, a range. Um, because that was the whole point of this process. It was about 
building evidence to support their learning. And that's why the portfolios were so useful. And the way we scaffolded it up was that they had to fill out these Google forms um, throughout the year where they were looking at the standards and looking at the assessment and really reviewing the feedback they were getting and you know making determinations about whether or not they could really transfer the skill to the next assignment or to the next time they had to use it without me telling them to. So really granular, something practical. If you're if you're there, and I and and I know you've uh, spoken to this point, but if you're there as a teacher and you're like, look, I really want to try this. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna promote your book. We're gonna give some copies away as well. Um, and and, and folks uh, will dig into that. But if you're gonna just say to a teacher or to a school leader who wants to try some of this, what's like one, two, three, either steps or things to do or things to try that gets um, gets us in the door? Because I think a lot of people want to do some of this, but not sure exactly how to start or how to even broach the subject. Okay, so the first really easy thing to do is have an honest conversation about people's assumptions with grades. And that's have it with the kids, have it with your peers, have it with your leaders. You know, what does a grade mean? What, what are we trying to do with them? How, and be really honest about it. What I learned is that folks are, very, very attached to grades. And some of them don't even understand why. I think that it's more because it's the way we've always done it and maybe they don't know anything else to do, uh, especially secondary folks. I find that elementary and middle school folks are a lot more willing to let go of the grades because they see how damaging they could be. So that's the first kind of conversation that you have. And that's the first thing people could do as departments, um, individual teacher to leader, teacher with students, and just gauge where people are in terms of readiness. Um, there's a lot of research out there. I'm not the only one who talks about this. Mark Barnes has a bunch of books. Rick Wormley talks about it a bunch. Um, and then you have other people who are on the spectrum who aren't as quite as far to the left as I am, like Ken O'Connor. Um, he wrote a book that's a toolbox for grading 15 fixes for broken grades. And that's really the book that got me on this journey. Um, because it was easy to read and it had some really good fixes. So I would also say immerse yourself in some of the literature out there that's going to help you move. The next thing you could do is you could stop grading everything. Uh, instead of giving grades on everything, just give feedback until you get to a place where it's summative. Formative work should never be graded. And we should be giving students a lot more feedback a lot more of the time. And we should also be empowering them to give feedback to each other, even in elementary school. So bringing the language of the standards into the classroom, like you mentioned Hattie before, so that visible learning element of making sure that learning targets are really embedded in the learning. Um, having students be able to articulate, you know, what are we learning? Why are we learning it? And how do we know we learned it? Um, so that those conversations happen and then also start bringing reflection into the classroom, which is something you could do with or without grades so that the students have an opportunity to share what's going on in their head and you're not just assessing what you see, you get an extra layer of what you don't necessarily see that could be very helpful in, you know, future 
instruction. Thank you, Star. That's incredibly practical. And I think a lot of the audience and then eventually when we, we launch this um, can take away. Uh, thank you also for mentioning some of the other resources and the baby steps, maybe like the Ken O'Connor work towards this. We're going to shift gears a little bit. If you were going to improve the student experience in every school, what would you want to see done? Oh, such a such a big that's such a big sort of question for me because I I think that it's time for real systemic change, not just, you know, what could be done in a in a small space. I think school learning spaces need to give children their dignity back. I think grades strip them of their dignity. They need to feel like they belong somewhere. So the relationships we build in our schools is so essential to doing this kind of work because kids need to trust us to open up about what they know and can do. And we have to be able to be honest with them as learners as well to say, I don't know that, or you know, let's figure it out together so that it's more collaborative. I think grades also set up very um, competitive environments. And I'm not going to say that there aren't places for competition in schools. That's what sports are for. That's what different clubs and activities are for. I really don't think classrooms are good competitive spaces. So that's something I would change as well, that we're building cooperation and collaboration and not competition, which is another reason to get rid of grades. Um, and I think that we should move to a more personalized learning project-based approach in all classes, not just, you know, when it's convenient and not a project-based assessment where kids are working on their own, but real pedagogy that kids are doing all the time, getting them out of the classroom, bringing them into environments to see how the learning connects with their lives. So those are a few of the things that I would want to tackle first. And then, you know, of course, getting rid of standardized testing and all that bad stuff also. <laughs> That's great. Well, well we're going to start the revolution. So we're, the awesome. systemic change is coming. Um, the revolution is here. You mentioned a couple, of, um, a couple of books. Do you have a favorite resource that you typically go to or to introduce to people? It could be about teaching, learning, leadership, any resource that is just one of your favorites. Oh, wow. There, there are so many. I recently read um, Costa's book about dispositional learning, and I thought that that was really great, and it definitely supports the reflection work that, that I am so invested in. Um, I think for Teach Like a Pirate is also a really fast and practical read. You know, Dave Burgess wrote that one. Um, there, but I mean, it really depends on what you're looking for. Um, there's a lot of great leadership books out there, but I encourage teachers to read leadership books because we need more teacher leadership, not just leaders in leadership, um, to start moving to a more collaborative approach. So Peter DeWitt's book about that is really awesome as well. That's great. Thank you, Star. You've moved into a totally different space. You're now working with districts throughout the country, internationally. Mm -hmm. You're no longer in a district. For you to still feel like you're making a great impact, um, what does the next three to five years look like for you as a leader in education? 
I think that I want to be doing this work all the time with schools and teachers who are ready. And that's essentially what I'm doing, bringing the formative process into class, like really working with teacher clarity, working with assessment um, reform, helping schools and teachers see that there are better ways to help all kids um, and, honor, and honor their strengths um, as learners. So that's something that I'm really focused on. And I think at the end of my career, when I'm you know, maybe 10, 10 years down the road, I'm thinking real policy reform, kind of getting in front of a bigger audience so that the standardized testing craze that's happening on right now in terms of accountability, um, we shift our focus away from that. Um, a lot of people talk about how higher ed is the problem, but I, I just worked on a book for a higher ed institution about getting rid of grades. So it's starting to happen um, on the higher ed side too. And if I could be a part of the revolution that changes the way we think about assessment um, for learning, uh, I, really, I really hope that's what I'm doing for the next three to five years. That's great. Thank you for that. Thank you for your work. The work with teacher clarity and the research around that is just, it's awesome. So uh, we look forward to more on that. In terms of like a pivot outside of education, are there any leaders or people who you follow outside of education who aren't educators for inspiration or for information? Um, I know a lot of people I don't follow um, outside of education. <laughs> don't, don't, um, don't, put, don't not, say them. I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. um, I, um, I'm a part of a Triber, a Triber community, so I, I'm also around a lot of authors and creative folks um, who push my thinking about just the way we brand ourselves. Um, I don't know if you guys aren't on Triber. If you blog, I strongly recommend it. It's a great way to build your audience and get more readers and find people to read and connect with. Um, my friend Dawn Casey Rowe used to be an educator and now she's working in the tech field, the tech sector, and she, um, she's a great person to follow because she just knows a lot about a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, there are folks that, um, that are really into mindfulness. Um, my husband is a mindfulness coach, so that's like another area that I kind of give shout outs to because I'm not mindful enough sometimes. I'm not really good at quieting the noise and it's good good reminders to kind of have that around all the time. Yeah, but sometimes Star, those voices give me the best advice when my mind's not settled. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, Do they sometimes, talk to you? <laughs> sometimes. So yeah. TJ and I often think about this. Is there a book based on a topic you're contemplating, thinking about, that you wish someone would write? Um, I, I think there needs to be a book eventually about how the system structurally has damaged people. Like, I, there needs to be, like, really long term research on how educational structures since No Child Left Behind have really left the system worse off and not better off. It, it may have 
started with good intentions, but instead has ruined, you know, teachers' passion for learning, built totally burned people out, ruins the learning environment in school because people are so hyper-focused on the testing and the scores and what it means for the school. So, I mean, I, I think that that's research I, I might like to see done, whether I'm a part of it or not. That's definitely something that I think would be really worthwhile um, because there needs to be a shift again, a, a major swing back in the other direction. You could still be accountable without, without all of these useless numbers, in my opinion. No, that's great. So that's fantastic. Um, last thing, if you were going to hold schools accountable without the test scores, what would be that indicator for you? Um, I think that it would be really prepared citizens for life. I don't even want to say career and college ready because I'm not really sure what that means anymore. Um, and it's so um, layered with the common core that I'm not really sh sure what everyone's understanding of what career and college ready is anymore. And I think that kids could be entrepreneurial. And I think when we, when we think about accountability, I think about are kids productive members of society when they leave our spaces? Do they have the skills they need to be successful in whatever their chosen path is? And I think that if we start using, again, progressions that schools develop around particular core standards that we want kids to walk away with, and this is something we agree on as a group, and then kids could demonstrate that before they graduate, then I think that schools are doing what they need to do. I mean, you've got a lot of smart people in that room, I'm sure, and I know the two of you are very smart, but if you all, you, you know, we all put a, ourselves together in a space, I'm sure the body of what we know is vastly different. And the way that we approach problems is probably also different. And that has to be okay. We have to have a system that's flexible and ready to deal with folks who see and do things differently, who approach problems differently. And instead of shooting down people who don't follow you know, the directions or who don't do things the way we would do them, we need to embrace that. So I mean, I think the accountability really comes in whether or not these, these children are productive after they leave us. That is awesome. Lots of great stuff here. Thank you for joining us, Star. Is there anything else that you would like to add for, for today's listeners? Just that it's really okay to take risks and that when you start doing this journey, if you're somebody who's really had a traditional classroom, and I did for the first six years I was teaching, um, I really much did things the way that I was taught. And as I started moving away from that, I really refined my practice over the years. And so even if you do read hacking assessment or something else, my journey isn't necessarily the right one. It's just an entry point for you finding your journey and figuring out how it best works in the space that you have with the children you're working with. 
So, you know, don't be too hard on yourself when you make these kinds of changes, except that it's not going to work the first few times and that it's going to take massaging to really, to really get it right. And hopefully your leaders support you while you're doing it. Well, that was fantastic. You heard it here on Focus Ed with Star Saxon. Everyone, how about a hearty uh, round of applause from the, the studio audience? <laughs> Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll see you at our next Focus Ed. And until then, stay focused. Thanks, Star. Thank you, guys. seeing you virtually yeah you guys went off we uh oh, we were at, yeah we had to go beginning. off the bandwidth was getting <laughs> yeah. a little iffy at the beginning so we we took it off but you you were fine that was your, your bandwidth was great that was awesome thank you right. thanks thank for joining you guys. us um i guess do we have do, does anybody else have questions is has anyone read it or They'll get it tonight, so they will read it. We'll make sure. And we have a test that they have no. to take once they're done. Mm -mm. <laughs> Any Hi. questions from the audience? Anybody have a question for Sarah? Done a lot of project-based learning, and how would you kind of, I guess, rank your students versus that traditional classroom where they're not doing the project-based learning? I'm a big advocate of PBL also, but uh, even performance on a standardized test, someone that does PBL most of the year versus someone that doesn't. Would you say your students performed as well on, for example, a standardized test? Yeah, they did. I mean, do I think that the first year I tried it, they did? No. Um, it took me a while to really understand that you couldn't just make a project and say, do it. Um, and expect them to be successful at it. Um, really what I learned the, the first few times is really designing um, rigorous and engaging projects took a lot more work than it seemed and engaging kids in the process of even designing those projects was another way that it kind of helped. But giving them the time and space to do it, giving them flexible timelines so that they were getting the time that they need, they really got to go deep. And I, I think that they really were as prepared as their counterparts who were getting drilled and hated going to those classes because of it. Thank you. That's great. Thank you for that question. Anybody else? How long would a typical conference take with a student? Like okay, that's a, 
that's a really good question. And I would say when I first started, they were taking like 10 minutes, which is way too long, which is when I started doing the Google doc, the Google forms ahead of time so that the kids really had to think about what they were going to say in the time that we had together. And it gave me a chance to read what they sent in ahead of time so that I could really direct my questions to where the gaps were and what they discussed. So I was able to get most of the conferences down to five minutes and, you know, a 30 second um, transition time. Cause what I started doing even at the end is their names would be up on the board with their appointment times in class. And then they knew who they were going after. So if they saw that person up at my desk, you know, that the child leaving my desk would cross their name off the list and the next person would come up. But as silly as it sounds, all of those little time saving things took me time to figure out it, you know, probably each time I did it, it got really, really more, you know, efficient. I wasn't very efficient in the beginning and it was taking me a really long time. So that's, and I, in New York city, by the way, I, I had 34 kids in my classes and I was teaching high level English. So a course, you know, a caseload of 150 students or so, when people say it can't be done, I'm telling you it can be done. It just, it takes an effort. You, you do a lot on the front end and you do a lot less on the back end. So you just got to front load a lot of stuff. Yeah. I have a question about uh, other teacher buy-in. Mm -hmm. Like um, I did an in-service last year about project-based learning and even on my own team, I do a lot of the work and prep work for them and just getting them to buy in to the project-based learning. Um, how do you get them to get over that hump that's, they're scared? So th they are scared. And like I said, as, as leaders, you have a bunch of, a couple of leaders in the room, I, I would recommend making yourselves available to just be a second adult in the room when people try it out the first time because i know a lot of the problem that i i saw with my with my team when i was a leader is that they were afraid that the kids wouldn't be on task and the kids would get out of control if the teacher wasn't up at the front of the room so one thing you could do is maybe offer one of your colleagues the opportunity to have you in the room with them to try it out or invite them into your room while it's happening. Um, do some intervisitation around what it could look like in different spaces so that they could actually see what it looks like, have them interview the kids in your class about the experience, what do they like best about it, how much do they feel that they're learning. Um, I think some folks are just so afraid of not doing it like well or right that they are their own worst enemies sometimes. And it's unfortunate, but just keep doing what you're doing and the folks who are on the fence will definitely follow, especially if the kids are talking about it a lot. Well, Star, we don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been generous and thank you for, for everything. Are we going to see an ASCD in Washington? I thought I saw that on a tweet. You going to be there? Yep, I will be. All right, we'll catch up mm -hmm. with you there. All right. See you guys All right, later. Thanks. Thank you. Bye -bye. See you soon.